Genesis 25:27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would take it now and instruct our hearts by it, that you would, as only you can do, make your word effective in our hearts and minds. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to be attentive, to listen. Prick our hearts with conviction where that needs to take place. Heal us where we are hurting. Strengthen us where we're weak. Help us, cause us to see the light. Lord, this is only a work that you can do. And so we come to you asking now that you would help us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We talked last week about the dysfunction that we've seen in so many of the families in Genesis thus far. And we get to Isaac and Rebekah, and there's a sense, uh, at least for me, that you look at their story and you kind of hold out hope that they're going to be different. That they might be the perfect family. They, They almost seem that way in the beginning. If you think about just how Rebekah came into the life of Isaac Uh, Even her arrival, that picturesque image of when Isaac was out in the field in the the evening, the sun is setting, and she arrives, he's praying, she comes and dismounts, you know, their eyes meet, you almost imagine some kind of um, cinematic, uh, picturesque, uh, storybook type of meeting, and they seem to have real chemistry. You know, Isaac's the only patriarch who only had one wife, was married to only one woman, When they're not able to have children, what does Isaac do? As we looked last week, he goes to God in prayer. When Rebecca has a troubled pregnancy, what does she do? She goes to God in prayer. And so it just seems like, well, what we would say today is the perfect Christian family. Oh, but as we all know, there is no perfect family. Uh, It doesn't take us long to see the dysfunction that is here. And it's certainly here before the boys arrive. It's just not recorded Um, that's true in all of our lives. There is no perfect family. Uh, Jacob and Esau, though, were not the only sinners in this family. Rebekah and Isaac were as well. And as we looked last week and talked some about this, the fact is dysfunction is normal. And what I mean by that is there's no family that doesn't know dysfunction. And the reason is, is we're all sinners, And because sinners make up families, families know dysfunction. You see, sin breeds dysfunction. Sin harms relationships. A lot of times we like to think of our sin as personal or private or our our matter that no one else needs to know about. 
But in reality, there is no sin that doesn't have effects in other people. I have known in several situations people that thought that they had kept everything secret and had no idea. They never realized the ripple effects that uh, that were happening even when they thought things were secret. And then when a secret is exposed, of course, it does devastation. So because everyone is sinful, because everyone's flawed and broken and marred by sin, therefore so is every family. I would imagine this makes some people uncomfortable. And the reason that it is uncomfortable for some of us to say something like that is we can talk about the fallenness of the world, the fact that the the world is fallen, that the world is sinful, it's broken, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. We can talk about the fact that everyone's a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when it comes to talking about our families and how sin has affected our families, that's kind of a forbidden territory. For example, I can say my family's weird. You can't say my family's weird. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. It's, again, one of these unspoken or unwritten rules of our society uh, it's it's the the dynamic in in a marriage that uh, you know a, a husband can say uh, something about his mother, but the wife doesn't need to say something about his mother, and vice versa. The wife can say something about her mother, but the husband better be careful what he says about his mother-in-law. So dysfunction is something that all of us know, whether we admit it or not. We need to get past this awkwardness in order to talk about it because. Not only do we see it, I mean, we've seen it so many times in Scripture. And every, I mean, we go back to Adam and Eve. I mean, Cain kills Abel. Noah, the dysfunction, the drunkenness, the, you know, uh, Isaac, Ishmael, uh, Abraham, Lot. We, we go through all of these stories and it continues when we see how Joseph's brothers treat him. Incredible dysfunction. And so we need to be able to talk about this. We need to be able to talk about the fact our families are not perfect. None of us are the perfect husband, perfect wife, perfect parent. Our parents weren't perfect. None of us had the perfect family, no matter how nostalgic we may feel about it at this point in our lives. Our families aren't perfect. They have been affected by sin. And what I want us to see is that the the effects of sin are not just out there. The effects come from right here. That the problem isn't just out there. This is what I want us to see. The problem is right here. I am the problem. I'm a part of the problem. I've contributed to the problem. And we need to be able to appreciate and talk about this, that we are the problem before we can really see some of the practical benefits from Scripture of how these things can help us in our families. I mean, we look at this text and there's so many things that we might be able to identify with. Do you struggle with uh, instant gratification? I'm hungry. Give me the stew now. I want it. It may not be stew. It may be something else. Uh, Do you struggle with just having your wishes fulfilled? Uh, Jacob trying to figure out how to get his way, controlling, scheming, navigating. What about favoritism? We see it. Isaac and Rebecca show favoritism to the boys. What about children toward parents? Children, have you ever done that? Tried to play your parents off of each other? Tried to play favorites? Do any of us struggle at times with not caring about things that we should care about? We see Esau despises his birthright. He grew cold to the things of God. He discounted the promises that had been made, and he was cold toward them. Have we ever struggled with those things? I mean, we could make a list a mile along. But again, what I want us to see 
is that the problem is not out there. The problem is right here. And while this isn't about bashing families or beating ourselves up, it is about recognizing that we all have personal responsibilities. Just like Isaac and Rebecca both did, Jacob and Esau did, our actions, our words, even our thoughts have consequences. There are ripple effects. We're not an island to ourselves. And that is not just true in the context of family. If you're single... Uh, you're, maybe you're widowed or divorced or you've never been married and maybe your kids have moved out and you live all alone. You still don't live all alone. Now, I know right now we all feel like we live all alone, but in a normal context and, and even in this setting, we still get out. I mean, we still go to the grocery store. We still have to go to the bank. We still have to go get our license renewed. And normally we still go to church. So we're around people. And so when we do things like mistreat people, or speak unkind to people, or act unkind to people, when we try to use someone for our own benefit, when we ignore or belittle someone, all of these sinful actions have consequences, a ripple effect. They affect other people, and they contribute to the dysfunction of our world. The world's broken by sin, and people are the ones who sin. We're the sinners. So this story then today is highly practical for us. And I don't, I want to say this at the outset, and we'll come back to this. It's not just because of dysfunction. It's not just for that we can have better families or behave better. But the reason that this, this passage is so practical is the reason every passage is practical. And it's the point of every passage. It's the point of every sermon. You know exactly where I'm going in this sermon and every other sermon. It is the hope of the gospel. That in the story of Jacob and Esau, we see God's sovereign election in showing mercy to whom he will show mercy, of which we have been recipients. And it's that gospel hope that we uh, cling to in times where we experience the ripple effects of dysfunction, whether it was from the way our parents treated us, or whether it's from our own sins and how we've uh, treated a spouse or treated our children or treated someone in the grocery store, that we cling to the hope of the gospel, that in Christ we find mercy. And so the story of Jacob and Esau is the story of God's incredible mercy, and it's a story that we all need to hear So the birth story that we looked at in our previous study gave us some indication of how different these two brothers were. Even in the womb, they were at odds with one another. They were trying to crush one another. And so now we look in verse 27 and we see them grow up. Esau into the outdoorsman, Jacob into uh, an indoor guy. He It wasn't that he just stayed indoors. He's described as being a man of the tents, uh, quiet. We see later he was... Uh, more of a farmer or a shepherd. He remained close to home. He wasn't the adventurous one that Esau was. Esau is the rash, outspoken one. Jacob, more the quiet, intellectual one. Esau wants the immediate gratification, demands immediate gratification. Jacob, more calculating, more cunning, uh, conniving, scheming in his ways. You couldn't get more two more different brothers, both in terms of their personalities as well as in the things that they were interested in. And I can relate to this a little bit in that my brother and I are very different. 
not in the same sense that Jacob and Esau were, uh, but in, in the sense that we have different interests, we're wired differently. And, and some of those differences may have played into some discord in the growing up years that may have led to some bruises or black eyes or even a trip to the ER for some stitches. But we eventually grew beyond all of that. We discovered that even though we were different, we did have a lot of things in common. We've ended up being, being, uh, becoming good friends. And Jacob and Esau do have some moments later in their years where there is some restitution. Uh, but the, the uh, reality for their uh, family life, in a sense, their family tradition was discord. The family tradition for Jacob and Esau was dysfunction. And it started in the womb and it continues as they grow up. We need to remember that during these years, at least until the age of 15, Abraham was still alive. So they knew their grandfather. They would have spent time with him. They would have heard his stories. They would have listened, listened to him recount the promises that had been made to him. And so they would have had at least a cognitive understanding that those promises had been made, and they would have at least understood that for the promises to continue, they needed to do so through at least one of them. So there was an awareness of these things. We don't know that... Uh, well, it would have been logical for them to think that it was through Esau. Esau was the older one. We don't know that Rebecca ever disclosed. I wouldn't think that a mom would do that. However, we see other dysfunctions. Maybe she did. Uh, but I wouldn't think that a mom would disclose what she learned and that the older will serve the younger, the prophecy that God gave her. And so there is this unhealthy family tradition, so to speak, of the dysfunction between the two brothers. There's another family tradition that's unhealthy, and that is parental favoritism. It says in verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We get the reason why Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved the game. He loved the flesh. He loved the fat and the protein and the, the smell of cooking meat, uh, however it was prepared. And we can imagine Esau returning from one of his hunts. He was a skillful hunter, uh, verse 27 tells us. And we can imagine the anticipation that Isaac had and the joy that he experienced from enjoying the plunder of this food. But there's a darker aspect of this favoritism. Isaac loved Esau more, and that's dysfunction. That's wrong. Parents don't need to have favorites. But there's a deeper, darker aspect in that Isaac loved Esau for what he could do for him. And that's even more dysfunctional. That that's not the way our relationships ought to be, especially as parents toward children, but it's certainly not the way any relationship, healthy relationship ought to function, that we love someone for what they can do for us. So we see that Isaac is also a man who struggles with his appetites. And that trait is demonstrated in Esau's life, but it's in, indicated here in Isaac's as well. And that plays into things later in the story when Jacob conspires to trick his father. Now, we're not given the reason why Rebekah loved Jacob. It's simply stated, but, but, <laughs> that word but is there. It's a conjunction, and it indicates something. It indicates that there, was, uh, there wasn't harmony between these parents. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so the parents 
are at odds with each other. I don't think it's fair to say that the parents didn't love the other child. I'm sure that they loved both of their children a great deal. But there was favoritism going on. And I think it's indicative of a deeper problem that often exists when favoritism occurs in a, in a, in a family. And that is that there was strife between the husband and wife. So there is another family tradition, another dysfunction that we see. And it's going to come back to play into the story in the years ahead. So Esau, the rugged outdoorsman, makes his dad proud when he comes home with a kill. Jacob the quiet, indoor person who brings joy to his mom. Now, depending on your own background and your own personality, you may be more inclined to one brother or the other. Maybe you look down on Esau because you think he's a redneck, or you look down on Jacob because he sounds like a mama's boy. But regardless of our inclination toward either of these brothers, what we need to see is that neither stand worthy before God. One schemes to take from his brother what was not his own. The other, driven by his appetites, doesn't care about anything but himself and immediate gratification. Both impacted by this parental favoritism. And so here we are again, another dysfunctional family in the unfolding saga of Genesis. And as I mentioned last week, there's hope in this because of the gospel. In that our sin and our dysfunction, just like that in the family of Isaac and Rebekah, doesn't stop God, doesn't thwart his plans, doesn't prevent him from doing all that he wills to accomplish. It's interesting that Moses drops in this one little hint about Isaac, and I don't want us to miss it. I want us to to consider it uh, because this is going to come into play. Remember Isaac's love for Esau's game. That's going to pay a, play a significant part in the story uh, as that story continues to unfold. And so God's plan moves forward. We see his faithfulness uh, to, to bring to completion all that he begins, even though this family is dysfunctional. In verse 29, we get to the actual episode of the stealing of the birthright. Now, we know that Jacob is the schemer. He's the deceiver. This won't be the only time that he does this. We're going to see this is a pattern in his life. It's who he is. And yet the emphasis in verses 29 to 34, uh, the emphasis is on Esau and particularly on the fact that Esau despised his birthright. Now, we're not picking on Esau. But what I I want us to see, and, and I think the emphasis of this passage is on God's election. In other words, Esau goes in the direction of the flesh. He moves in the direction that all of us would go, being dead in our trespasses and sins, apart from the saving work of God, apart from the mercy shown to us, and the redeeming grace in our hearts, we would be just like Esau. We would move in the direction of our appetites. We would do whatever pleases us. Esau is a picture of what we are apart from God's mercy. And the writer of Hebrews calls him unholy and immoral. That is who Esau is. Jacob, on the other hand, is a picture of God's redeeming grace. And you say, Seth, how is that so? He's the schemer. I mean, he's just another side of the same coin. Why is he a picture of God's redeeming grace? Well, 
it doesn't have anything to do with him in terms of his performance, his actions, or his behavior. He wasn't holy and moral. He, he was unholy and immoral in his behavior. But remember Jesus' words when he said to the people, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we see in Jacob, the, even in these early stages of life, even while he's still cold and calculating and in a sense going after his own appetites in his own way, we see God still at work in accomplishing the redemption. Now there's more to come. Jacob is not only going to trick his brother here, he's later going to trick his father to secure the deal. But our tendency is to look on behavior and make judgments. That's that's how we're wired. We want to look on on behavior and determine who is worthy and who isn't. And, and we do that our, ourselves all the time to try and make ourselves feel worthy. What God is training us to do from the earliest words of Genesis is to help us to see that it's never our behavior, it's not our performance, it's not our work, it's His election and His redeeming grace alone, never what we do. A good example of this, if you grew up in the church, is how we were taught Sunday school lessons. Maybe not all of us, but I certainly remember thinking or hearing uh, stories like this, whether it was, I don't remember if it was in the church I grew up in or other churches, but it, it rings a bell that, you know, you would hear stories of David and Goliath and, you know, be, be a David and, 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 you know, what is your Goliath? And, and every story would be this moral story, be like this person. And then every story, and we love to do this, you're taught to make it about you. And we're naturally wired to do that anyway. What is your Goliath? You know, what do you need to destroy? And that's not what Scripture, if we truly understand what Scripture is teaching, Scripture is not about, I mean, we grew up, right? We realized what David was like, that he was, uh, he was immoral and unholy. He did some awful things. So what God is training us to do from the very beginning, whether we're talking about Esau or whether we're talking about Jacob, whether we're talking about David or anyone else in Scripture that we might idolize or idealize, is that it is God's mercy toward us, period. By grace alone are we saved. It's not by our works. It's not our performance. We don't need to look at this and make judgments based on behavior. We can only look and marvel at the mercy of God that has been shown to Jacob and that has been shown to us. Well, Jacob is home. He's cooking stew when Esau comes in from the field. Esau is exhausted. He's dying of hunger. This sounds like every boy from 15 to 25, they, you know, they usually come in, I'm dying and there's nothing to eat. You, know, you hear that all the time. And that's what he says in verse 32. I'm about to die. He feels like he's going to die from hunger. He wants food, and he's desperate. And the desperation comes out in that phrase, I'm about to die. We see that, but it also comes out in how he phrases what he says. And I found this very interesting because it doesn't really come through in English. There's, there's a real crassness to how he demands the food. In the Hebrew, it would read literally, let me swallow that red stuff, that red stuff there. He repeats himself, and he calls it the red. 
And in Hebrew, the red indicates there's something. And so we would put the word stuff, but he's just, it's just very crass. Give me that. I want to swallow it. I want to inhale it. I want to fill my stomach. He is rough around the edges. If you thought it was unkind for me to suggest that Esau was a redneck, now you can see why a number of scholars <laughs> use that term to describe him. Of course, it's a little bit of a play on words because of what his name means, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he wants to inhale it. He wants to have it now. And, of course, that, that, uh, that irony that I just mentioned in that his name, uh, this nickname of Red, you know, that describes him and being ruddy, uh, now the red stew, give me the red stuff. We see this word, Edom, uh, appear again and again. And so now we have that parenthetical phrase that this becomes his nickname. And so the descendants of Esau are known as the Edomites. So the man that has the red hair wants to eat the red stew, and he wants it now. And Jacob is sitting on G, waiting on O for this opportunity. He sees the perfect opportunity. So that he, he's been thinking through this. He's been plotting. Uh, he jumps on it. Sell me your birthright now, he says to his brother. Sell me your birthright now. And you anticipate this shock from Esau, like, what? Where did that come from? But we don't see that at all. This immediate response from Esau, I'm about to die. What's a birthright to me? And you see again this crassness, this he despises his birthright. He doesn't care. He's cold. He's indifferent to it. He thinks that it doesn't matter. It has no value to him. It's not worth anything to him. All that matters to Esau is getting his belly filled. Now, you may not have have had that kind of experience, but there are many of us who recognize the attitude here that is problematic. It may not be about food or hunger. It may be about other appetites. But this attitude is dangerous, and we need to recognize it for what it is. It's the attitude that plays into addictive behaviors where we want something and the want of that something trumps everything else. In other words, we stop caring about other things because what that thing that we want, because of that thing that we want. We want that so badly that we say, who cares? Who cares? Just, just one more drink. Or what does it matter? Just one more slice. Um, I'm, I'm already in debt. What's one more swipe? Or, you know, I, I could win it all, just one more bet. Or we stoop to our lowest of lows. Life doesn't matter, you know, just one more hit. And so this attitude that we see in Esau is a fleshly attitude. It's an attitude that, that it's, it, we could say has an appetite for destruction, that he uh, follows this appetite and it leads to his destruction. Now, you may hear that and think, well, I've never done that, thought that, would never think that. But be careful, because this attitude has other ways of emerging in our hearts. Maybe yours isn't toward addictive type behaviors. Maybe it isn't toward appetites in that sense. But this attitude emerges in other ways, like a desire to control things. Maybe you're willing to steamroll people to get it done right. Or you're willing to use people to get what you want. It's almost a little more dignified. It's what we see Jacob doing. He's the schemer, the conniver. He seems a little more dignified, intellectual, quiet type. 
but He is also satisfying His appetites. Folks, all of us have a little bit of Jacob and a little bit of Esau in us. And all of us can behave in these ways. And these fleshly tendencies that we see exhibited here are ones that we continue to war against even after we are saved. But understand this, the glutton and the anorexic have much of the same heart issue. The alcoholic and the teetotaler both struggle with similar worship issues. The spender and the saver have very similar idols of the heart. And so my point is, even though we tend to side with Jacob, now that we realize he's going to be the winner of the story, he's the elect, so we we want to kind of side with him and we want to look down on Esau at this point, we need to realize all that we have been saved from. The depravity of our own hearts from which we have been delivered. Because when we don't understand the depravity of our own hearts, it cheapens God's grace. We begin to forget that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And so if this is something that, as I spoke these words today, you tended to be the latter person more than I would never do that. Let me encourage you to to read. Uh, Read Romans 3 this afternoon. Not to beat yourself up, but to realize all that you have been rescued from. You see, we don't need, you know, when Jesus said he came for the sick because the well don't need a physician. What he's getting at there is that we need an awareness of our own sinfulness. If we think that we're well, then we don't we don't think we need a savior. The grace of Jesus is just, you know, a nice little add on. We consider it something to help us, boost us. But we are sinful, wrecked by the fall, and we don't need someone to help us. We need someone to save us. We need the mercy of God. Well, Jacob doubles down on his brother, calls him now to swear. He wants to make it irrevocable. And again, we expect this hesitation from from Esau, like, Why do I need to do that? It's just soup. Just give me the soup. Esau doesn't hesitate. Sure, whatever. Uh, You know, I swear he agrees. And so now it's irrevocable. The birthright has been designated to Jacob. And he will later do the final acts that seal the deal. Now the nail in the coffin of this idea is expressed in the final verse. It says, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You hear it in the rhythm and the wording. Uh, there's no pronoun there. He just, he ate, drank, rose, went his way. Did his business, filled his gullet. He was done. He was gone. He only cared about himself. He was driven by his appetite. The promises that his grandfather had told him about meant nothing to him. And Esau would get exactly what he deserved. No mercy. Now that's hard for us to hear. And I'm sure that when we read Romans 9 this morning, that's a passage that's hard for us to hear, hard for us to read, hard for us to understand. We struggle, some of us more than others, with this whole notion of mercy, not because we don't think people should be shown mercy, but because we feel like it's unfair for those who are not shown mercy, the non-elect. But note that Esau doesn't care. No one's twisting his arm here. 
And neither is anyone twisting those arms of the ones who reject the faith in Christ today. Those who want nothing to do with God, who are, are proud atheists. No one's twisting their arms, making them reject God. But understand this. This is you and me apart from the work of God's grace in our lives. This is exactly how we would go. We would be just like Esau apart from the regenerating work of God. We would despise his goodness if he hadn't breathed new life into us. So when we read verses like we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we see that. If you haven't witnessed it in your own life, then see it in Jacob's life, that that is the direction that you would be headed if it weren't for the grace of God. So the whole point of this passage in this episode is not behave like this or don't behave like that, but the whole point is that we would marvel at God's mercy. Jacob, Esau, neither one of them are lovable. Neither one of them are worthy. That God would show mercy to Jacob is mind-blowing. It should blow our minds. It should, it should rattle us. It should startle us. It should humble us. It should also refresh and encourage us that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. From the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You who are trusting in Christ have been reconciled to God. Things have been made right. That gap that sin created, that divide has been bridged. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We who are redeemed and reconciled are presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Write that on your, your chalkboard in your kitchen. St- you know, cross-stitch that on the pillow. <laughs> that, that's, that's a phrase we can't even get our minds around. It's a phrase that we need to remember and be reminded of because we look at our behavior and we see, you know, how could God love me? But you who have been reconciled to God are now presented holy and blameless and above reproach because of the work of Christ. That's who you are. Holy, blameless, above reproach. Because of Christ. So yes, there are behavioral elements in the story. Things that we could consider. We we don't want to be controlled by our appetites. We don't want to show favoritism toward parents, parents towards children, or any dynamic like that in the family. We want to avoid family dysfunction. We want to avoid being selfish and being driven by our own desires. But again, these are not the point of the passage. The point is the hope that is ours, that is found in Jesus. We're at times both like Esau and at times like Jacob, and yet we have been saved and moved from death into life, bought back from enslavement, delivered from the wrath of God. It is the good news of the gospel 
that we need to hear and cling to in, 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 in this time that we're in right now, in times when family dysfunctions may be at a little heightened level because we're all enclosed in the same house more than we typically are, the hope that we all need is the hope of the gospel. That God's redeeming work is not stopped, diminished, put on pause, or anything because of the dysfunction in our family. In fact, His redeeming grace is magnified because He has overcome all of those things. We have been redeemed from them. And it's where it's because of this that it's in Him that we need to place our hope. None of it's earned. It's all grace all the time. Romans 9.16 So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So take hold of the great salvation that is ours in Jesus and rest in Him, knowing that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would You... Help us to know, to believe who we are in Christ. To know that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So regardless of what we did yesterday or this morning or a week ago or a year ago, or regardless of what we're going to do tomorrow, that we are held firmly by the work of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That your mercy toward us, because of who you are, and because of what Christ has accomplished, is irrevocable. So would you help us grasp that? And Lord, then as a result of that, may we be compelled to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Break the bonds of addiction. Break the chains that bind us to the patterns of wanting to control things, or wanting to use people for our own gain or wanting things to be done perfectly or right. Shatter the idols of our heart that lead us to want to to either fill our, our, our bellies or control to have some sense of security. Lord, those idols that that are so demanding, would you break them? That we would see the all-satisfying worth of Jesus And know our confidence is not in our performance, not in our our ability to attain satisfaction in any of these things, but our hope and our joy and our confidence is in Him and Him alone. And Lord, we long for the day then that we will know in full what now we only know in part, and that when our joy and our satisfaction will be beyond measure, beyond comprehension, we look forward to that day. And we know and we trust that it is ours because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we give you the praise and the glory and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.